Chronicles is not two books, but one book at the end of the Hebrew Bible, if you remember. And, and the Chronicles are really um, the, the writer taking the history of Israel and, and writing sermons on this, giving sermon material specifically for a group of people who, who were Israelites who had gone into captivity, who are now coming back to Israel, back to Jerusalem to be helping rebuild Jerusalem. They're still under, at this point, they're probably under the Persians, but they're still under captivity in a sense. But they need to rebuild, they need to kind of restore the right worship of God. God. And God's bringing them back to this point. And so really the whole book, both one and two chronicles, one book, is written to encourage those returning from captivity in the restoration of the right worship of God. Now what's interesting specifically about this section is, this, this in chapters 29 and, uh, 28 and 29, we see the end of David's life. And if you look at sort of the parallel passages in 1 and 2 Samuel or 1 and 2 Kings, what you see is they show David as who, this once mighty king, as this frail man, this sick man, this man who is, is, is susceptible to deception. There's a, uh, we, we read in those other narratives that, um, that one of his sons tried to usurp the throne and take over uh, the throne and it was actually ended up being stopped and he had to kind of make Solomon king in private. And there's all this drama. And the author of Chronicles kind of skips all that. And it's not because the people who read this wouldn't have known about that drama. It's because the author wants the people to see something. He wants them to see that God is still working. Especially as they've been, they've been talking about David. We've seen David for over the last several chapters. Really most of one Chronicles focuses on David. And we see that David was a man of high achievement. All these great things happened while David reigned as king. But the people who were reading this for the first time were people, well, they were in the day of small things. They were in the day where they had a broken down temple, broken down walls, a city that was in shambles. They had gone into captivity as a first world country. They've come back from captivity as a third world country. And things are difficult. And they can be easily discouraged. But the point the Chronicles make, the Chronicle is making all throughout this book is that God is still working. It's not the kings that were so important. It was the God who worked through those kings that we need to understand the promises he made through those kings. And so what we're going to see today in this kind of transition from David to Solomon as the king over Israel, we're really going to see that this, this transition didn't steep, keep God's plan from happening. It didn't thwart God's plan. It actually confirmed that God was doing exactly what he had promised he would do. And like these guys who read it for the first time, we can know God is still working. So I want to kind of quickly give you guys five things that we see David that did and see how those things apply to us. So, starting in chapter 28, verse 1, David reminds these leaders of God's plan. It says, now David assembled, verse 1, at Jerusalem, all the leaders of Israel, and then he lists all the leaders that we saw talked about in chapters 23 to 27. And he says, it says in verse 2, that David, uh, King David rose to his feet and said, hear me, my brethren and my people, I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and had made preparations to build it. Now it's important to notice what, what Chronicles tells us. He tells us, the author tells us that David stood up. This is David on his deathbed. 
And it's like David wants to prove to this assembly, this public assembly, look, look, I'm not done yet. God has one more thing for me to do, and that is to uh, uh, exhort you in what he's doing right now. And so he stands up, and he begins by saying, I have this desire, this strong desire, to build a house for the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now, what David's going to do in this reminder in these first eight verses it's just kind of tell these guys what they already know, what he's already kind of made clear to them over the last several chapters. And what he wants them to know is the plan that he's laying out for them, that he's exhorted them to fulfill, is indeed God's plan. In fact, he says, when he, he talks about, I want to build a house, the emphasis is not so much on the house he wants to build, that comes later, but the emphasis here is about the fact that it's a house for the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It's not David's covenant, it's God's covenant. It's that contract of love that God made with his people. It's his plan. It's the God who established the covenant. Now, in in verses 3 to 8, he goes on to talk about how God did this. And I want you to notice how often he talks about God choosing or how God chose. Notice verse 3. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. That will be important toward the end. However, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be the ruler. And from the house of Judah, the house of my father, and among the sons of my father, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the, of the Lord over Israel. Now he said to me, it is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he is steadfast to observe my commandments and, to, and my judgments as it is to this day. Do you notice what, how David does this? He brings up over and over, it's God who's chosen to do this. Now this is really important. Because the point that, that, that David wants these guys to see is, it's God's authority that's to be trusted. David never said, look at me, I'm the great king, you can trust me. He's not saying now, look at Solomon, he's the great king, you can trust him. He's saying, this is what God has chosen to do. He's the one you can trust. God's the one you can trust. That's why there's this exhortation in verse 8. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, be careful to seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children after you forever. In other words, because God's the authority that can be trusted, do what he says. Now we all know this, don't we? This is like kind of, God 101, there's a God, we should do what he says, right? If we don't believe there's a God, well then, you know, we do what we want to do. But if we do believe that there's a God, we should want to know what he says, and if he's God, we should do what he says. And what you have here with Israel, God's chosen people, is God didn't just kind of make himself known and make these great promises, he did that, but God also said, I want to make sure you know this is my will. And so when he creates this covenant, when he makes this covenant with Moses, with Israel through Moses, he says, this is my will, and he lays out exactly what those commands are. And those weren't meant to be burdens, they were meant to be blessings. They were meant to show the people how much they needed God's interaction in their life, God's intervention in their life. 
They're meant to show them the right way to live. Now this is important because it's funny how often we forget this basic thing. God's in charge and we should do what he says. It's really basic, isn't it? We, we push back against this, but it's the most basic thing. Now, it's interesting. We see the same kind of idea in the New Testament. In this sense, the fact that we forget and we need to be reminded. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter said, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In other words, what Peter says, just like what David's saying is, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But you need to be reminded. It's easy for us to forget. When I was doing youth work in the States, I, I worked for Youth for Christ for a time. And we did this thing where we were training the student leaders. We did this kind of, uh, I guess, this game uh, with them to sort of illustrate something. We, 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 we took one person, we stuck them in a chair, and we said, now pick someone that you want to be your encourager. And they picked one person. And that person would come stand next to the person as they sat in the chair and would whisper good things into their ear. They would say things like, you know, you got this, you know where you're coming from, God has you in this, God's called you to this ministry. Just, just good things to encourage them. And then everyone else, all the other student leaders, stood around and yelled, you're an idiot! You don't know what you're doing! He should quit now. And we did this when it was quite fun to watch this happen. It's amazing how, how, how enthusiastic the kids were to tell each other about how bad they were. But, but it was great to see this because what would happen is it was an exercise of that person sitting having to listen clearly to the voice that was leading them the right way. And in a very real sense, David's saying, don't forget God's plan. That's what you need to hear. That's what you need to be reminded of. That's the first thing. Second thing, David now we see equips Solomon, his son, to fulfill God's plan. Now what he says to Solomon in verses 9 to 21, again, are things that he's been exhorting Solomon about probably his whole life. Remember, Solomon's the one who wrote the, the, wrote the book of Proverbs. And throughout the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is about wisdom, about how do you live your life skillfully. And throughout the book of Proverbs is these exhortations to keep God as your focus, to let the relationship with God be the priority. And this is what he is exhorting now Solomon again as part of the equipping process. Verse 9, David looks to Solomon and he says, And you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. And serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Consider now, the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Now notice, there is this exhortation that... that that David is giving Solomon to build this temple because the temple was the center of the right worship of God in Israel. Very important thing, big part of major theme of, of the book of Chronicles, of course, is the temple. But it's important that we see that the, the way that, that David is equipping Solomon to do this, first and foremost, is to say, Solomon, make sure you are prioritizing an authentic relationship with God. Let it be real. See, this is what happens to us, especially when we have big ministry projects. Especially when we find ourselves being busy. When we have families or workplaces or ministry opportunities that are fruitful or going well, that are worthy of our investment, it's easy to make them the priority 
And our relationship with God kind of trickles to the end. Maybe at best, we kind of want to be close to God so we can do all that stuff really well. But that's not what David is saying to Solomon. David is saying to Solomon, Solomon, listen, you need to prioritize this real relationship. Notice that he calls them to, he says, serve God. First, in fact, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, know God, then he says, serve God. You've got to know God before you can serve God. He says, know God, then he says, serve God. But notice what he says, when you do serve God, you do know God, make sure it's with a loyal heart and a willing mind. He's calling Solomon to this wholehearted devotion. But we have to understand something. Solomon had to understand something. If we're going to be wholeheartedly devoted to God, we have to be understanding his wholehearted devotion to us. You will never commit your life to God if you don't think God is committed to you. You won't. This is one of the reasons I believe super strongly that that once a person is born again, when God, God the Holy Spirit does this supernatural work to give us this new life, and we put our faith in Jesus, once that happens, it cannot be undone. Because God, I believe God intends us to have such an assurance that we belong to Him, because unless we know we belong to Him, we will not commit our lives to Him. Wholehearted devotion to God is always a response to His wholehearted devotion to us. Do you understand? Now, he also exhorts him though in this. Look at verse 11. He says, Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat. Verse 12, And the plans that all that, I'm sorry, the plans for all that he had by the Spirit for the courts of the house of the Lord. Now, David's going to go on and he's going to list a whole bunch of things. He's going to talk about uh, how, how he's given Solomon the plans for the division of the priests and the Levites. Again, that's what we looked at in chapters 23 to 27. He's given them specifically the plans of how to make the lamps, the lampstands, the tables, the forks, the basins, the pictures, the bowls, the, the, the actual Ark of the Covenant. Basically, everything that has to be made for the temple, all the instruments in the temple, David says, here's the plans. He gives them the blueprints as well as the materials. Here's the blueprints. But all that list of things, and there's some really interesting stuff there. In fact, uh, the fact that he lists these things uh, is important. I would go back and kind of look at what these things are later on. But it's interesting that in verse 12, he, he frames those things between verse 12 and verse 19. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, David said, The Lord has made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. Now, we don't know for sure how David got this information from God. But there's no doubt whatsoever that David is saying, the Spirit showed me exactly what every detail of the, te- of the temple is supposed to look like. In other words, what we're building, we're building by the Spirit's revelation. This is important. We're talking about David is equipping Solomon to fulfill God's plan. And he's saying, listen, this is only going to work if you rely on the Spirit's revelation. If you rely to, on what God has already said he wants to do. Now, what do we have of what God has already said? This book. The Word of God. The Scripture. You see, here, here's one of the things that we forget. We forget that we're not going to know what God's plan is or how God wants us to fulfill that plan unless we actually stick to the book. 
Don't get me wrong. I believe in what the Bible calls prophecy. In the sense that God has a specific word for a specific person or people group at a specific time. Uh, the Bible didn't say, there's no verse I can point to that says, John, leave America and go to England. There's no verse that says that. But I know that God spoke to my heart about this. And one of the reasons I know that God spoke to my heart about this, he confirmed it with a prophetic word. Someone else, actually two different women at two different times with prophetic dreams, confirmed that I was to go do this. It was already on my heart. I knew this was from God. So I believe God does this. But listen, the only reason I can know that God speaks that way is if I know what God has already said. If I know what the Spirit's revelation is. The Bible is called the sword of the Spirit. Now, as we get into Solomon's reign, and as we see how Solomon built the temple, it's going to become obvious that Solomon's, uh, his personality, his ingenuity, his own skills and giftedness, were, were there adjusting or filling out the plans and applying the plans that he received from David. But listen, he was able to do that because those plans were from God himself. They were the Spirit's revelation. This is important. We're only going to fulfill God's plan if we stick to God's book. And lastly, verse 21, what does he say about this? How does Solomon, or, or David, uh, prepare Solomon? It says in verse 20, David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. And then he says, here's the divisions, here's the, what the plans lay out for you. Well, this is important because part of the, the equipping that David did with Solomon was to prepare him. Look, you got to finish the work. You know, when Dave, or sorry, when Jesus called people to follow him, he called them to count the cost. He says, make sure you're prepared to finish what you started. Now, the reason he does this is because when we actually count the cost, when we see what Jesus says, it's going to cost us to follow him. We go, I can't pay that. And we have to say, God, i got to trust that you can. That you'll provide what I need so that I can finish this work. I can finish this race. But there's something here that's really, really awesome too. When he says, when David says, be strong of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed for my God will not leave you nor forsake you. He's actually saying the same exact thing that Moses said to Joshua when, when Moses was about to die. And Joshua was about to take God's people into the promised land. So in a very real sense, he, he, he's, he's saying this. David is saying, I'm Moses, you're Joshua. God used me to bring God's people to this point. Now you're taking them to the next point. It's a clear passing of the baton. It's a way to encourage him. Look, God's with you in the same way God was with Joshua to bring a conquering to land. Again, how does he know? How's he going to know this stuff? By what the scripture says. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Guys, do you realize what we're doing here? One of the reasons we take so much time to unpack the scriptures, it's not just so we can go, oh good, we heard a sermon, take off the box, I've done my religious duty on a Sunday. No! There's a purpose in us getting into the word together. We want to get into the scriptures because we want to be equipped for the good works that God has for us. We want to know how we do these things. David equips Solomon to fulfill God's plan. That's the second thing. Third thing, David motivates the leaders to invest in God's plan. 
How does he do that? First, by setting an example. Look at chapter 29, verse 1. Furthermore, King David said to the assembly, My son Solomon, who alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. He says, Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might. And then he lists all the things that he gathered for, uh, for this building of the temple. Now, one of the things we need to recognize is he says, well, some of the things are, he mentions things like bronze, iron, wood, precious stone, marble slabs, gold, silver, all these different materials. But notice what he says in verse 3. He says, these things are from his, my own special treasure. So in other words, what David is saying is, look guys, I'm not just saying we should build this temple. He's saying, I've taken, I've scraped together what came out of my own pocket, my own pay, you might say, and I'm sticking it towards the temple. I want to see God's temple built like this. Now this is important. It's important because we need to recognize in Scripture that God doesn't hesitate to connect our worship to our wallets. Now I hesitate, and I'll tell you why I hesitate. I hesitate because all the rubbish that's on religious television. Are the charlatans that lie and manipulate to try to get your money, and then they take that money and they live high on the hog on that money. That is blasphemous and it's wrong. So it makes me not want to ever talk about money. But you know what I've realized? After almost 30 years of teaching the Bible, God doesn't shy away from talking about it. He doesn't shy away from challenging us as his people to say, look, do you, do you want to worship me? Do you want to declare my worthiness? Do you want to trust me with your life? Okay, let's see how that applies to your wallet. See, I'll be honest, I don't like that. I don't like that. You know, this whole idea of tithing, giving the first 10%. Something that God uh, really taught me and my wife when we first got married. Something that we were, I was discipled in as a, as a young believer, so it was second nature. And I always thought, okay, look, I'm trying to stay out of debt, and I'm trying to tithe. I'm good with my money. So the rest is mine. But that is not how the scripture talks about this. The Bible says clearly in Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all the Lord's. And so in a very real sense, David is saying, listen, I'm exhorting you guys. I'm setting the example for you. I am giving to this project. David was literally putting his money where his mouth is. But he's also doing this. He's motivating them by calling them to follow the example. He didn't just say, oh, look at me, I'm doing this. He's calling them to follow his example. Look what he says in verse 5. So he says in verse 5, where is it? There it is. He says, <clears throat> the gold uh, and the things of gold and the silver, things uh, of silver, for all kinds of work to be done by the, by the hands of craftsmen. I've done all this stuff. He says, who then is willing to consecrate himself to the day, this day to the Lord? What happens? Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, captains of thousands and captains of hundreds, hundreds the officials, officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks. Note that word derricks. We'll come back to that in a second. Of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of God in the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, 
Who's rejoicing? The people rejoiced. Why are they rejoicing? Notice, for they had offered willingly. That is, the leaders had offered willingly. Because with a loyal heart, they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced greatly. Now, I love this. Because what you have happening here is you have David setting an example of generosity. And these guys following the example of generosity. I love it. Now, I want you to notice that word derricks, because derrick was a Persian currency. And so when he says derricks, he's talking about, he's using, it would be like if, if I was here and I was saying, they gave 10,000 pounds. Why would you say pounds? They didn't have pounds back then. Well, we would say pounds to say this has an application to you right now. So the author of Chronicles, when he writes this, he uses the term derricks because that was the currency that his peers, the readers, would have used. The, the, the currency that, that David would have used would have been something completely different. But the, the, the readers would have used derrick. So he used the, the words derrick to describe what was going on. He translates what the amounts are. He's wanting his readers to say, now this has a literal interpretation. Now I know this too. Listen. The people who came back out of captivity from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem, do you think they were rolling in it? Do you think they were all about the bling? <laughs> no, they were quite poor. They had been slaves and took with them just the bare minimum to restart. And yet, and yet what the author wants these guys to see is, look, but the priority has to be restoring the worship of God. It has to be that priority. Now at this point you're going, dang it, he keeps talking about money and he's going to, Ask for an offering? No. In fact, here's how I want to apply this. Because I want to say first and foremost that Servants Church has been growing in giving year upon year upon year since we began the church. We, we are almost to the point that our average giving fits our average attendance, which wasn't the case. And I'm so thankful that you guys have been stirred to generosity. When we asked for a plea for, for finances, we got more than we asked for. And I'm so thankful for your generosity. So in that sense, this is why I don't want to apply this directly to money. I want to apply this to something, though, that I think is harder for us. In John chapter 13, the night that Jesus was going to be crucified, or the night before he's going to be crucified, he gathers his disciples together and he washes their feet. He takes the lowest position of the lowest servant of the house. And they're blown away by this. They don't know how to respond to this. And here's what Jesus says to them. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your, te your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. To you. Guys, listen, going back to, to Chronicles and thinking about Jesus as our example, I want you to think about this for a second. David is, is motivating his, his leaders to invest in God's plan. This is God's plan to create a place where he will be worshipped, where heaven and earth meet in the temple. This is his plan. Invest in it. They go, yes, we want to invest in it. David's excited. The people are encouraged by the example of David and the example of the leadership. They're excited to the point that we're going to see later on to actually respond by doing likewise. Listen, do you see Jesus as one 
who washes your feet. We're called servants, church, because Jesus is the servant. That's why the apostrophe is before the S. Jesus is the servant and it's his church. And unless you see him as one who's come to serve you, to save you, to change you, to keep you, you won't respond this way. You've got to see Jesus as he is. You see, the Lord sets the example. Yes, we on the leadership team, we need to try to set the example for you as well. and Forgive us where we fall short. But the reality is this. Jesus sets the example. Are we willing to invest the same way Jesus did? You know, investing in relationships is a lot like washing feet. Because you gotta, if you're going to invest, you've got to get close. And when you get, I don't know if you've ever been close to someone's feet, but it's not usually a pleasant experience. Especially in this day, when, they, when Jesus was washing feet, it was definitely not a, a pleasant experience. And so it's really analogous of what it means for us to be closer in relationship, to be committed to each other because our God is committed to us. We're willing to get near each other's stank because we're committed to what God's doing. See, guys, the temple that God's building, New Testament, is not a new building. It's us. And if we're going to be built together, we're going to have to be willing to wash each other's feet to serve one another. That's the third thing. David motivates the leaders to invest in God's plan. The fourth thing. Verse 10, starting in, in uh, chapter 29. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God our Father, forever and ever. Now I'm going to read this whole prayer from verse 10 through verse 19 at the end. I've kind of rewritten it slightly, personalized it for us as servants' church, so I'm not going to go through it all right now. But just, I want you to notice a couple things. From verses 10 to verse uh, 13, David's focus really is on adoration. Praising God for who he is. Exalting God. Adoring God for who he is. And I want you to understand something. That adoration, listen, does not start with feelings, it starts with facts. It starts with us acknowledging that God is as he's revealed himself to be. If you think worship, if you think praise and worship is about you trying to work something up, trying to feel something, you to have a certain experience, you're starting in the wrong place. Because where it starts is adoration. Remembering who God is and adoring him. For that, saying, God, you, there's none greater than you. This is what David does, as, he re, as, as, uh, as we'll see when we read this out later on. But he goes from adoration to humiliation. It's as if, as he starts to think about who God is, he sees himself for who he really is. He's lowered by this. Verse 14, he says, But who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? Think about this. He's humbled by the fact that he can give to God. He's not going, huh, man, what a great example I set. And the leaders, please just follow that. And the people, now they're following us. We rock. There's none of that. There's like, God, who are we to even be involved in this great work that you're doing? He talks about in verse 15, he says, Our days on earth are a shadow and without hope. 
Now, obviously, David knew that, that, that God was his hope. But what he means by this is like, hey, if, if life is just about life, then all we have to look forward to is death. If there's nothing beyond the grave, life is pretty meaningless and there's just death. That's kind of what he's saying. In other words, listen, what's happening is, David is, is seeing his, his and his people's utter inability to do what God wants apart from God's intervention. That's what we mean by humility or humiliation. He's humbling himself before God as, as the representative of the people here saying, man, God, who are we? So he goes from adoration to humiliation in verse 10 to 19. But then look at verse 20. Because in verse 20, he goes from humi- they go from humiliation to celebration. It says, Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. And so notice, all the assembly blessed the Lord uh, God of their fathers, bowed their heads, and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. Do you know what that means to prostrate, prostrate yourself like this? Sorry, I always do that. The doctors are all laughing at me right now. To prostrate literally means you go from knees to head to the ground. It's like, have you ever seen uh, you know, a video or something of Muslims praying? This is what they do. They prostrate themselves. It's the idea of saying, God, you alone are worthy. I don't even have, I'm not even worthy to look at you face to face. Again, it's, 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 a, it's a picture of humiliation. I'm humiliating myself before you, God, because you're worthy to be exalted. Now, we see this, and it kind of, it doesn't really sit well with us. We don't really do this very often, do we? I mean, we're a contemporary church. We, we meet in a school. We don't have pews. We don't have kneeling platforms. And so kind of the idea of kneeling or prostrating ourselves, that seems kind of almost odd. And is it really necessary? I mean, come on. God sees my heart. And I'm not saying that we have to do this, but I have to say there is something about, listen, there's something about putting yourself physically in a position that helps you get in a focus of where your mind should be. Now, I, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you're not really praying unless you're on your knees or unless you're prostrate. That's not what I'm saying. But I will say this. If I, I, I pray when I stand, I pray when I sit, I pray when I lay in bed. I pray all kinds of different places. I pray in the car a lot, so, you know, until I lost my license. Uh, I pray on the bus. <laughs> Maybe that's why I lost my license. But I'll tell you what, if I'm going to really seek after God, I need to get on my knees. There's something about getting on my knees that reminds me who I'm talking to, the king of the universe, that helps me steer my heart to reverence him. And it's no, I don't think it's any accident here that they go from adoration to humiliation and then humiliation to what? Celebration. Because what happens? Verse 21. And they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the next day. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And what do they do with those sacrifices? After they give them to the Lord, they divided them up and they ate of it. So, so they ate and drank before the Lord with great gladness that day. First they prostrated, then they partied. <laughs> See, this is, where, this is why we don't celebrate very well. Because we don't start with humiliation or adoration. We don't start with, this is about God. 
This is about God. We're singing to God. We're serving God. We're wanting to follow God, the creator of the universe, the one who took on flesh, human flesh, to meet us where we are, the one who died for us, the one who loved us, the one who's given us every precious promise. We don't think on him. And because we don't think on him, we're never really humble. And because we're never really humbled, we're never to the point where we want to say, we're never in awe of how great God is and how amazing it is that he calls us his sons and daughters. And so we never get to the point of celebration. But David is wanting his people, listen, to get what they need. That's why this whole thing from, from verse 10 all the way through verse uh, 22, the first part of verse 22 at least, this whole thing is about David praying to the one who has to fulfill God's plan. He, he, it's like in the middle of this exhortation, he just starts praying. Before he's even sort of laid hands on, on Solomon and said, okay, you're king now. Before that even happens formally, he just goes to God and says, God, we need you so desperately. And you're so good and so worthy to be trusted. It's you who's going to make sure this temple gets built. It's you. Folks, this is where God wants us to be. See, when we come together and we gather and we worship in song, we're not trying to butter God up so he gives stuff for us. God, you're so awesome. Hey, by the way, can you pay this bill for me? No. We're saying, God, you're so awesome as you are, and we want to give you praise and, and, and just... Let our focus be on you because it's got to be you who does all that we need. And you know when we do that, you know what ends up happening? We remember that God will do all that he's promised to do. And then you know what we do? We celebrate. Yes. Yes, we're suffering. But guess what? It's temporary. Yes, people think we're nuts, but it's okay. We're following Jesus. Yes, this world is really hard and dark, but Jesus is the light and he's coming back soon. We go from adoration to humiliation, from humiliation to celebration. This is how our prayer and our praise should look. This is what David does. So lastly, what do we see? David finishes his life by furthering God's plan. It says in verse 22, after they ate and drank with great gladness, it says, and they made Solomon the son of David king the second time. Remember the first time it was kind of in secret. And they anointed him before the Lord to be the leader and Zadok to be the priest. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. And all the leaders and the mighty men and all the sons of the kings of David submitted themselves to King Solomon. So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. How many kings had been before Solomon? Two. Saul, who ended really poorly, and David, who we see is ending really well. But God exalts Solomon to a place, a great place. Now, I want, we are in a sense talking about David here, and I want to not miss this. Because remember, David wanted to build this house, and God said no. What did David do when God said no? 
Did he sulk? That's folks. I'm going to build a house. I'll just be king, I guess. No, David says, that's okay, Lord. What can I do? And he has the freedom to make the plans, to gather the materials, to prepare his son to do what God says it's not for you to do. In other words, when David can't be exalted to the highest place, what does he do? Okay, Lord, who do you want me to exalt? He's not about his own glory. He's not even about his son's glory. He's about God's glory. Now, here's, here's the thing. What's going on here is we're seeing that the reason God is exalting Solomon over David is because we'll see about Solomon in the first nine chapters of, of two Chronicles, we'll see that Solomon is really the Prince of Peace. That's where the picture of Jesus as the Prince of Peace comes from. It comes from Solomon being this Prince of Peace, and God is exalting the Prince of Peace more than the man of war. Why? Because God wants us to relate to him, though God is a warrior, the Bible's really clear. God's a warrior. God doesn't mess about. Even when Jesus comes back, he comes back to judge. No doubt about that. But he wants us to come to him as the Prince of Peace, the one who made peace between himself and us through his own death and sacrifice. This is why the Bible exalts Solomon this way. But also, lastly, in verse 26 to 30, we'll close with this. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. And the period that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven, seven years he reigned in Hebron, 30 years and he reigned in Jerusalem. And so he died in a good old age, full of days, riches and honor. And Solomon's son reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David, first and last indeed, they are written. And he gives three references where stuff about David is written. He says the book of Samuel the seer, and the book of Nathan the prophet, and the book of Gad the seer. And with all his reign and all his might, and the events that happened to him, to Israel, and to all the kings of the land. Now why is this important? First of all, the author is telling us, here's where he got his information about David. His historical information about David. Because again, he's writing this uh, um, quite a long ways after David's been gone. He says, I got this from the book of Samuel, the book of Nathan the prophet, and the book of Gad this year. The reason this is important is because he, we need to see that this historical king, David, points to our eternal king, Jesus. That this isn't just a type of a, an idea, or David isn't a metaphor. David was a real person, and he points to a further real person, our eternal king, Jesus. In fact, Jesus, interesting, in the last book of the Bible, in the end of God's revelation to mankind, his written revelation to mankind, this is what Jesus says, one of the last things that Jesus has written, or has written about himself. He says, I, Jesus, this is Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. At the very end of the revelation of God, he connects it all the way back to David. So that we would know that, that what God did through David was simply to point forward to who Jesus is. Now I said I wanted to read to you guys a personalized prayer. It's on the back of your notes. So you have notes on this side, the prayers on this side. And I've never, I've never done this before at a, at a gathering. Um, but it's something that I've done many times for my own benefit. And as I was preparing this week, I felt like this is a good prayer for us as a church. 
And so I slightly changed some of the words. I personalized this. I, I tend to do this as I, in my own Bible reading. When I come up to a prayer in the scriptures, I will usually in my journal write it slightly different so it's a prayer that I could pray right now, word for word. And so I want to close our, our gathering time together today by praying this prayer. I'm going to read it as a prayer to God. I'm going to read it as, as us, as a representative of us. And I'm asking you to f- just follow me. Don't, don't feel like you have to try to read it out loud with me. That might get a bit tricky. But just follow along as I read this. And let this be the prayer of our heart. Let us believe that God is still working. And let's pray this in light of that. Praise be to you, Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. From everlasting to everlasting, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is Servants Church. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler over every ministry. And your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all of us. Together, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. But who are we? That we should be able to give our time, talent, and treasure as so generously as this. Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers on this earth. Our days on earth are like a shadow. Our only hope is the resurrection of your son. Lord, our God, all this abundance we have provided for our building and gospel ministry. You for your holy name. And it all comes from your hand and it all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things we desire to give willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willing your people uh, who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and the God and and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever. Keep our hearts loyal to you and give us all wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and to do everything to build one another up for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. I'll see you next week.